Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine Banks. And today's pin is a orange in honor of our guest today, the newest and youngest representative from Florida, Maxwell Frost. Yes, our guest today made history in November when he became the first Gen Z member of Congress. At the age of just 26, our guest today is the youngest member of Congress, like Jill said, and is the first from Gen Z. And in the nearly three months since the House has been in session, he has proven himself to be a stellar member of Congress, already going on international trips, introducing new bills, and pushing back against the Republican extremists very effectively. Maxwell currently serves on a number of committees in Congress, including the House Oversight Committee, one that I think is one of the most important. It's chaired by James Comer, an election denier. So that must be an interesting thing that we'll talk to um, Maxwell about. And he oversees, as part of that, all the investigations into the Biden administration and other Democrats. Maxwell is also a part of the Congressional Black and Progressive Caucuses, The last time he was on our show was a couple of weeks before the election, and it brings me so much pleasure to now say to him, welcome, Congressman Maxwell Frost. Great to have you on again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, and it's it's great to be here, the before and after. (laughs) I love your background. It really suits you wonderfully. It is congressional. (laughs) Congressional, yes. Well, so... It's hard to overlook that the Congress you currently serve is serving is um, maybe to put it mildly a circus with Republicans in control. We've seen the speaker cave to a far right group, though we aren't sure exactly what he gave them other than the right to kick him out. But we've also seen appointments to Homeland Security to members who are against our security and the appointment of a crazy uh, weaponization of government subcommittee to do whatever it wants at the taxpayer expense. I'm wondering, just as a first time member, how does this house feel to you? Um, Is it what you expected? It, it, it is what I expected. And it's also not what I expected. Right. I mean, I, I definitely knew coming into this that we'd be coming in a slim Republican majority. I knew coming into this that the voices of the far right, the far right extreme MAGA part of the Republican Party would have their power increased. I just didn't know it would be by this much. Right. That we would have, you know, a vast number of election deniers, uh, January 6th sympathizers holding gavels. Um, that essentially, I mean, no one could predict what happened the first few days of Congress where the Freedom Caucus um, or uh, the, the Fascist Caucus uh, really took hold of the Republican leadership and can, you know, really holds the power there. Um, and uh, I think it's, you know, it, that's something I did not expect. Um, and obviously we're seeing what's going on right now, that the bills coming out of the House of Representatives are not about helping working families, ending gun violence, lowering the cost of housing, raising wages. It's all messaging bills to set themselves up for 2024. And in fact, Jim Jordan said that himself at one of these conservative conferences. He said, you know, we're, we're working to set ourselves up messaging wise for 2024. Um, so let's take them at their word. They're not interested in governing. They're interested in campaigning. And that's what's going on right now. It's just one big campaign. Of course, the sad thing is that you and Victor and I and people who are listening to us now all do take it seriously. Unfortunately, the people who are the MAGA wing of the party, the Trump supporters, they all actually believe 
what they are saying is helping them, even though it is clearly not. But I want to go back to sort of expectations and ask you about the burden of fundraising. I mean, it's only a few months that you're in Congress. And uh, like all members of Congress, I mean, I get daily requests for funding. And so I'm just wondering, is that what you expected to be spending a lot of time on? And how much time are you spending on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I, I did expect it because it was such a big part of my campaign. You know, money in politics is a real thing, both big money and the fact that you need to be able to fundraise to be able to win these races. That's why, you know, we're going to be fighting to ensure that, uh, you know, we're, we're fighting voter suppression and people who can vote. But something else we need to fight is the suppression of candidates and who can be a candidate. And that is really, you know, once you run to you understand that that suppression of candidates um, looks like the fact that you need money to run these races. If you don't have the resources, you really don't win. Um, you have a few outliers that eke out maybe every other cycle, which is really cool. But the vast majority of these campaigns, you can see that the amount of money you raise is almost directly tied to your viability as your candidate or your ability to even win. And so there's just a lot of structural changes we need. Like my North Stars, I think we should have publicly funded elections and really fundraising should probably not even be a thing. Um, and that's something, you know, when I was just overseas on this Codel in Japan and um, Korea, you know, there's interest. I would explain super PACs and corporations spending money in these races and they couldn't understand it. They were like, wait, what? A corporation can start a super PAC and spend unlimited amounts of money? Yes. And uh, it was hard for them to understand. So we have a lot of work to do. And um, I, you know, and yeah, I do, you know, there's a lot of time I do spend on uh, getting resources to make sure that we're set for the next uh, cycle. But I want to be more focused on what's going on here. But the reality of our system is that you always have to have an eye towards that. And it's unfortunate. Because what it really does is it sets you up for maybe a year of like true governing and then a year of campaigning. So I, I want to go back to uh, we mentioned the House Oversight Committee, which you're currently serving on. Um, it's now engaged in investigating the Biden administration. First, can you give our audience a, a, a sense of what it's like first sitting on that committee and then also what those investigations are focused on, if there's anything legitimate about them? Yeah, well, you know, I think there, there's there every once in a while there'll be a hearing that I think, you know, is an important topic to talk, you know, to, to speak about. But the the lens in which they view the topic is very political and bigoted. And so the conversation ends up not going the right way. For instance, the first one we had was on the southern border. Is there a crisis at the southern border? Yes, there is. But through their lens, it's a criminal crisis of criminals and immigrants and stopping immigration. And when we view it and when we look at the facts, we see it's actually a humanitarian crisis. And so I agree with the hearing on it, but what their hearing ends up being is full of bigotry, blaming immigrants for things like fentanyl, which is a huge issue. But when you look at the data, you see most fentanyl seized at the border actually comes from U.S. citizens, hmm. not, uh, you know, not uh, immigrant families. So, you know, it, it, the things like that are really important, but I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I just got my briefing for this week and I have um, eight hearings this week, um, which is a lot. Uh, well, I don't have eight, but the, the committee oversight committee has eight. Um, I, I believe I have five or six this week. Um, and it just goes to show you it's more about quantity over quality. And that's really what they're trying to do. They want to be able to in 2024 say we had 
500, 600, 700, I don't know what the number is, hearings on the Biden administration, and we crack down on them. But when you look at these hearings and you see the way they're going, they're not really going in the way that they hoped they would. You have Democrats completely rebutting what they're saying with facts, and then you have these Republicans who are just not sticking the landing. It's like doing a flip and then like falling over. That's what's going on um, in every single one of these hearings right now. So I want to follow up on that um, in terms of getting people who are listening to us now and to people who are listening to Fox News and not to us um, and not to MSNBC, but to the other point of view, which includes alternative facts, which means lies. How are you as a Democrat, how is the Democratic Party working to get facts out that would inform me and to the extent that anyone would listen from the other side, would inform them so that they would know the facts that you're talking about, that fentanyl is not coming in with immigrants, that it's coming in with American citizens, that there's a humanitarian crisis, all of those things. And maybe mention some of the, you said you had at least five or six hearings this week. What are those hearings on? Yeah, this is a great question. I think <clears throat> the committee the way it's structured and the press that the committees receive, I think it gives us a great opportunity to showcase to the American people, no matter who you are, because, you know, I love MSNBC, but you go on, you're, you're you know, kind of preaching to the choir, right? You know, and, and so, um, and it's even, you know, Fox News, you're kind of talking, you know, it's a very specific base, but with the committees, you know, this is public, right? And it goes out pretty widely and all news stations use them and it goes on social media. And I think we have an opportunity as Democrats to be very intentional about our line of questioning, um, not to be condescending, but to number one, showcase the ridiculousness that's coming from the Republican Party, but break it down in a way that's easy for people to understand, that's almost impossible to spin. Um, an example I'd give, uh, just plugging myself in my own office, is like on that on that border, um, you know, that border uh, uh, hearing that happened. I heard time. I had a line of questioning and then I kind of tossed it out because what we heard was open borders, open borders, open borders every time and time again. Right. They're saying everyone's just running in. It's crazy. It's pandemonium. And we had two uh, Border Patrol agents in front of us, leaders of their uh, units. And so I asked a very simple line of questioning. I said, when President Biden took office, did you open the border and just let everybody in like my colleagues are saying right now? And no. No. I asked the same thing again in a little bit of a different way. No, no. It's that simple. And now that clip, right, is something that ran, you know, that's running everywhere. And that I think helps us with our messaging and really educating people. It's not about being partisan. You know, I try not to, you know, be super uh, campaigning about it. For me, it's just about it's about the people versus the problem, not Democrats versus Republicans. And I think a big part of this, especially when we talk about conservatives or people that you might disagree with, is you should validate the root of their concern. And, you know, that's why I said before I started my questioning, I think this hearing is important. There is a crisis at the southern border. There is a fentanyl crisis. But let's look at the facts. Let's look at what's actually going on so we can solve this problem so we can protect our children and protect our country, protect our liberty, protect our freedom. And um, and I think that will help us get to it. As far as what hearings are going on this week, um, I can tell you right now, if you give me a second. While you're looking, I'm just going to compliment you on how you phrased the question about when President Biden took office, did you open the border? Yeah. That's a perfect way 
to make the point. Brilliantly phrased. No, thank you. I mean, you know, I and I've been asked a lot about this, and I think it's really just being as, as simple as possible. And when there is a ridiculous charge, sometimes you need to come at it with a ridiculous, what might seem is a ridiculous question, but it's actually pretty simple. I, for, I think it's Frederick Douglass has a quote about the way you handle these fantasies is really ridicule. And ridicule is a pretty tough word for it, but I think just really, you know, calling it out in a, in a very yeah. uh, direct way. Um, so the committees that we have this week are actually, we got one on, where is it? Today's Tuesday. Okay, so we have a committee on the border and security, foreign affairs, pretty broad. Um, and usually we won't get like the witnesses for this until like the night before or something. So it's mm -hmm. a full sprint. Yeah. I have a science committee hearing um, that's going to be on um, NASA um, and, and security. And so that'll be interesting. And the science committee is more of a real bipartisan committee sitting down, kind of heads down work. Um, sometimes you hear some weird partisan stuff, but it's a little different than oversight. Definitely a different vibe. Um, I have a hearing on, let me see here. We have a subcommittee hearing on government ops, federal work, workforce titled Waste, Fraud, and Abuse Go Viral, Inspector Generals on Curing the Disease. Very long title. We're going to be very partisan. We have one called Oversight of Our Nation's Largest Employer, Reviewing the U.S. Office of Personal Management. Definitely coming for the administration there. And then we end off the week, or maybe there's one more I missed, but then we kind of end off the week on the Biden family investigation. The Department of Treasury. And you have to look, you know, this is this is a message. It's like a show for them. Right. You, when you look at this, the title of it is the Biden family administration. And then it has a, a colon. And then it says the Department of the Treasury. It's like a movie title. Right. It's like National Treasure One. You know, the, yeah. blah, blah, blah. you know, it's like it's literally like a movie to them. It's a messaging. It's it's but it's also ridiculous. It's the Biden family administration. There's only one no, Biden no, family member in the administration, and that is POTUS. Yeah. The Hunter Biden hearing we just did, the name of it was like the Twitter or the Hunter Biden investigation, colon, part one. You know, so there's probably going to be a part two and a part like it's like a movie. it's theater for them, you know, and, and they've, wow. they've said what they're doing and, and trying to make sure people realize it. Well, in that in that vein, I mean, I, you know, I I think we both know that no young person wants to see this uh, happen. But also, a poll show that a majority of American people don't think that Republicans in the House should be spending all of their time investigating whatever the Biden family administration means and 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 Hunter Biden. But despite what the public are saying, I mean, Republicans keep doing it. So I'm curious, what like what do you think their end goal is with this? And do you think people are understanding that this is the Republican Party? I think their end goal is the fact that they're they're revving up their base, right? So the majority of so let's take a step back. I always like to explain. It. I feel like sometimes we feel like our country is super divided, in, in which it is if you look at the news and like everyone talking to each other, etc. But if you look at the polls, if everybody in this country voted, we would always have a Democratic Congress, Senate, and presidency. Why? because the majority of this country is actually very progressive on the issues. Unfortunately, where you're at on the policy doesn't always directly translate to where you're at on the politics. They're two different things. So because only half of our country votes, 
it changes our, our electorate looks a lot different than where the country is at. So when you see polls asking people about what issues they care about, what do they think about the Republicans doing this and that? It, it's probably a good representation of where the country is at. But remember, where the country is at is not necessarily where the electorate is at. The electorate is who goes out and votes. So I think it's always important to know that distinction, because when Republicans are making decisions on their messaging and what they're doing, they're not. it's not about where the country is at. It's about where the electorate's at where they're going to win elections. And they've made the conclusion that this is this is the right thing to do. Look at Ron DeSantis. Most of the country is not for these abuse of power and what he's doing, closing small businesses that disagree with him, et cetera. But it, he doesn't care. He's trying to win a Republican primary running for president. So there's a smaller group he's trying to get at. And so that's part of the reason we, we see them really leaning into this. It's not about if they did what the majority of the country cared about, we'd have universal background checks. A majority of Republicans and NRA members are for background checks. But it's not about that. It's about something different. It's about the politics, not the policy. Well, you mentioned a magic word, DeSantis. And so <laughs> from Florida. I it's magic. Uh, it's magic. <laughs> it's I, I'm going to skip ahead. We have so many questions for you. Yeah. So we're hoping you'll come back again for, for more. But let me just move ahead to DeSantis for a minute anyway. Um, he, aside from his obvious attempts to set the stage for running for president, um, there are a lot of things that our audience maybe needs his background before we talk about him, which is, I think he's one of the biggest threats to democracy and free speech. Um, he's done so many things that I know he's gonna claim as accomplishments, don't yeah. say gay. Don't make whites feel uncomfortable. Let's restrict the First Amendment rights of bloggers and require anyone who says anything about me, the governor, or anybody else in my cabinet, even on social media. You have to register and you have to report your income. Um, allowing Floridians to carry concealed weapons without a permit, yep. changing the death penalty to be, allow it to be imposed by a non-unanimous jury, um, school vouchers expansion. Uh, I mean, these are things that are just, to me, so anti-democracy. And I'm, I use that in the broadest sense of the word. You've called him a fascist for the things he's doing. I think that's absolutely legitimate. But can you talk more about why that terminology is appropriate? Yeah. Why it can be applied to your government and what the Democrats should be doing to protect democracy against DeSantis? Yeah, this is this is really important. And I always like to start off saying, look, I'm not a fan of crazy hyperbole, right? I'm not a fan of lying, <laughs> which is what we see, right? We see Republicans all the time, especially in Florida. This is the whole thing in South Florida and Florida in general. Republicans calling Democrats communists and dictators and trying to equate them to you know other countries and this and that. That's hyperbole, that's lie. And so I use this word, you know, I don't call everyone this, like this is very specific. And if you look up the definition of what fascism is, it's a far right ideology, usually with a very author uh, authoritarian figure um, that is utilizing government or state government or entity to silence the opposition and to impose um, their view of the world on everything. That's what fascism is. That's the definition. I encourage people type it in on Google. And then when you look at what DeSantis is doing, it is exactly that. I'll just rattle off a few quick examples that come to the top of my mind. 
the new college of Florida, a very small liberal arts college in Sarasota, where I actually lived in Sarasota for about a year working on a campaign before great college, beautiful, um, you know, it's a type of college where like the students don't wear shoes, you know, and they and they and they pick their own uh, uh, degree and they're learning so much. And it's such a cool college. In fact, a lot of people, some people don't know this, but X Gonzalez, formerly known as Emma Gonzalez, who really helped start the March for Our Lives movement. Yes. X went to New College of Florida. So it's a, such a great incubation of just leaders. Um, DeSantis doesn't like that. He doesn't like a smaller broads college like that. He thinks it needs to be more conservative. So what does he do? He does something that governors never do. He uses the state, fires the entire board of trustees, inserts a whole board of trustees that are conservative lapdogs that do whatever he wants. Then that board of trustees fired the president of New College and installed a new president that is the former Republican Speaker of the Florida House. That wasn't it. The former president of New College was making 200 grand a year. And this contract that the former Republican Speaker of the House has is $699,000 plus a housing stipend and a car stipend. Pretty good deal. Not just that, but we never see the legislature fund our schools. But guess what? They immediately appropriated $15 million to the new college for institutional changes. So that way, this new president has resources to make it more conservative, fire professors and put in new people. It's a complete hostile takeover of a university, of a college in the state of Florida. Another example in my own district, the Plaza Live, which is a small mid-sized music venue owned by the Orlando Philharmonic. So it's kind of a city-owned uh, venue. They had a drag show in December. DeSantis hates drag shows. His polls show him that with the MAGA far right wing of the Republican Party, if he targets a drag show, he goes up in the polls a little bit. So he needed to make an example of them. So he's working to revoke their liquor license. Um, we'll see how it ends up in probably about a week or two. Um, so he's working to uh, revoke their liquor license. But let's be clear, that might not sound serious to everyone. For music venues, if yeah. you can't sell liquor, you close. You, like, you literally close. It's done. So he's yeah. closing a business because they had a drag show. So this is what we're up against. So we have a governor who, by book definition, is a fascist. You abusing the state's power to target political enemies and any kind of opposition. You brought up another one, Jill, the uh, uh, bloggers. If you're a blogger in the state of Florida and you make if you make any kind of criticism of DeSantis or any of his top officials, you have to register with the state. And when you don't, after a certain amount of time, you get fined day by day by day. And uh, don't know this for sure, but like most fines in government, if you don't pay them after a while, probably leads to some sort of incarceration or worse um, uh, uh, um, consequences. So this is what's going on in Florida right now. Yeah. And of course, yeah. we haven't even mentioned what he's doing to Disney and to the fact that that blogger thing could apply to anyone who posts anything negative about Governor DeSantis yep. on their personal yeah. Twitter account. And yeah. talk about denial of free speech. I mean, it's yeah. It, it's an infringement on, on our liberties, on our freedom. It is un-American, and um, it's just not what should be we going on right now in this country. You, you know, mentioned music venues, and and because you are a musician or were a music, I mean, obviously now you're a congressman, but um, I, I understand you still are involved in the music, um, right? And yeah. Oh yeah, I still play. So one of your first bills actually related to that. 
um, in terms yeah, of so, integration? Yeah, so we, um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm putting out my first bill in the next couple of weeks, but this was like one of our first actions was, you know, uh, uh, um, the DHS um, was, is pretty much saying that they want to raise the amount of money it costs for two important work, temporary work visas that artists need to tour in the United States by over 250% per visa. The total cost would go from under a grand to around three to $4,000, um, which look for like world famous artists performing at an arena, you know, maybe it's annoying, but they got it. Like, you know, it's not a huge deal, but for small independent artists that come to this country, contribute to our culture, um, it makes it almost impossible for them to even be here. And it's not just because it's the right thing to do that they shouldn't do this. It also impacts the economy of our local small independent venues that make money from having foreign artists tour in the United States. I mean, if the United States is going to be the pinnacle and hub of culture in the world, we need to be able to let people to come here um, to be able to contribute to the culture. What I always like to say is when a tour comes through your city for that night, that artist, no matter where they're from, they're part of your town. They're part of your city. They're part of the culture of your community. And that's a, I think that's such a beautiful thing. And I would hate to see the administration do something to, um, to negatively impact that. So what they're saying is they're doing this to help pay for the parole program. Um, that the president has put into place, which I think the parole program is great, um, helping to lead speedy path to uh, um, uh, a legal status here for people to come work, work visas. But we can't pit issues against one another. And what's going to happen is because less people are going to even apply for the visa because it's so expensive, the demand will be so low that they're not going to see the increase in funds and capacity that they're looking for out of it. So I think it'll end up being a lose-lose situation. And I know this because I spoke with artists and managers and agents and said, with this cost, are you still going to come tour? Most of them said probably not. So I, I, just, I think the, it's a proposal that, um, that the agency put forward. Hopefully they drop it. And we put out a letter with some members who are on house oversight, which oversees agencies. So hopefully that carries some power, but also that uh, have districts that have a lot of music venues in it. Yeah, we, we know that you have to go in about a minute, but I, I do want to ask you one last question, which is, I mean, you've inspired so many Gen Zers across the country and young people to get involved in politics. I'm wondering um, in these three months, first, what's your biggest takeaway? And then um, second, what advice do you have for those who are inspired by you and how they can get involved? I would say my biggest takeaway is I'm really learning quickly about what it means to hold power, wield power in a representative body like Congress. You know, I've worked as an organizer for the past 10 years, working kind of from the outside, right? And working with the inside, but from the outside. Now being in here, you really realize that this is, uh, any representative body is really a math game, right? And if you don't have the math, you don't pass the bill. It's, it's actually pretty simple, but then very complicated. And um, And I always, you know, bring that up because, what we have to do as legislators and organizers and activists is assess our power, where we have it, use it as much as we can now to fight for what we believe in, but also work to change the math. Because changing the math is essential in having the numbers we need to pass the legislation that we want. Healthcare for everybody, ending gun violence, climate change, our North Stars, that we're not going to get these next two years. But thank God, uh, at the end of these two years, you know, everything doesn't just stop, right? The timeline for this fight for justice is longer than two years. Uh, and if that is your timeline, you're in for disappointment. And I, and I think it's important to realize how long this battle is. Um, what was the last thing? Um, your advice for uh, young people who are inspired by you. 
Well, um, I would just tell people to be, be in, get involved however you can and take what makes you special and what you love and, and use it, whether you're a musician, whether you're an organizer, whether you want to be an organizer. I like to, Ratatouille is one of my favorite movies, you know, the, the name of the book, Every, Everybody Can Cook. Um, it's the same thing with organizing and, and just fighting for the world you want to live in. And not everyone has to be on the front lines of a protest. I have been, not everyone has to, but we'd love for you to be out there. But you can fight for equity in your workplace, um, at church, at school, in little decisions you make in your life. And as long as you always see the world through the eyes of the most vulnerable people everywhere you go, that's how we build a better world. It's not just about our politicians. There's not one politician that's going to save us. It has to be collective um, consciousness and you know, all of us working together. Well, it certainly is true that if everyone in Congress were like you, a lot more would get done. I'm sorry that you're in a Congress that seems to be constitute not constitute to be unable to accomplish anything because the Republicans have no governing principle except to stop whatever Democrats want, yeah. and they have the majority in the House. So passing anything is going to be impossible. I hope that you are able to at least stop the passage of the worst instincts of the Republican Party. Uh, I, I, since we have a majority in the Senate, at least it would stop there, but maybe you can stop it right away. And that in your next term, that you're in a majority Democrat House and can get some of the bills that need to be passed, passed. That yeah. would be my hope. And my other hope is that you'll come back and talk to us again. Yeah, 100%. I really appreciate y'all having me on. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much, right. Maxwell. Thanks so much. Well, Jill, I agree with everything that you just said about you know, I wish we had every uh, elected official like Maxwell doing just the work, sticking to facts, not not launching. Sticking to facts. Oh, how yes. simple that is. Yes. How simple that is. But, you know, we, we don't live in that reality. But, um, you know, I, it was so interesting to hear him now in Congress. The last time you uh, we, we interviewed him, he was running for office. And it's just kind of a full circle moment. And I'm wondering what you think of what he's been doing so far and um, um, what the episode uh, kind of stuck out to you. Uh, I, I think it's, he's doing all the right things. He's paying attention, obviously. He's working hard. He's considering his first bill. He took action on the, uh, um, the point of having visas at an outrageously high price for independent artists and wrote letters hoping to provoke a change in that policy. I think he's doing really, really good things. And unfortunately he is, the reality is, I mean, facts are facts. The fact is that this Congress is not going to pass anything meaningful, uh, anything that we think is helpful. They are just out to stop any improvements. They are claiming that they're helping people who voted for him when the opposite is true. Definitely. And in that, in that vein, I think it would be appropriate for us to focus on 2024 because there is an election then. And um, both of uh, you and me, we read this uh, op-ed in the New York Times, which I urge everyone in our audience to check out. And we'll include it in the show notes if you're listening to this um, on the podcast version. But it's titled, 
Biden succession problem, and it's written by uh, Greg Craig, who was a White House, um, I guess, the White House counsel under President Obama um, and also served uh, in the White House under President Bill Clinton. He wrote something interesting that Jill and I, I think, could relate to, which is that we were both running to become delegates in um, 2020. And um, he argues that basically delegates and people should have a role in nominating the vice president and, and electing who that person is. Um, Jill, what did you think of that article? And uh, maybe you can discuss um, uh, how, how it resonated with us as delegates. Well, it wasn't just as a delegate. It was yeah. me as I look at what is in store in 2024. And I think part of what the article focused on was there's concern about Joe Biden's age. I look at what he's doing and say there's nothing wrong with his age, that he has the energy to do and the experience to know how to do it effectively. So I'm still all in for Joe Biden. But to the extent that there is any concern, it makes the vice president very important. And his point is that there are at least two examples in the past where the responsibility for choosing was not just after the nomination, the person selected as the nominee of the party picks the vice president. This is where the delegates are involved in the selection process. And it yep. creates a certain excitement and a certain ability to get a ticket that will energize voters. And so I thought it was a really brilliant idea when I read this article. And I, I think it's something that we should give serious thought to right now for this year, for, well, for 2024's um, convention. And I, I think it could really make a difference. There's a section, if I, can, if I can read, that I think really kind of strengthens um, his argument and, and, this, and this idea, which is um, he talks about how many people might see this as um, a betrayal of, of Vice President Harris, but he writes, um, this would be a misreading of the situation. Certainly he would be free to express his views about various possible running mates as he did, as did uh, Roosevelt in 1944. And there's every reason to think that she would win the nomination on her own. There's nothing disloyal about putting the vice president in a position in which she wins the slot and becomes more and more proven and battle tested um, in the process. If she were to prevail in her effort to be re-nominated, she would certainly be a stronger candidate and a more powerful vice president. So um, I thought that was really interesting how giving it to the people will just strengthen Vice President uh, Kamala Harris or anyone who ends up winning um, and their viability, not only in the party, but also as a leader. Um, and so I thought that was an interesting kind of snippet. And, and I think maybe now would be a good time for us to talk about. I mean, there's so much talk about President Biden's age and how he's, I think, about to turn 80 or is he 80 years old? I, I always forget. Is he 80? I, I think he's well. I'm about to be 80. So I, <laughs> You're about to be 80. I mean, really, guys, age is just a number and mine's yes. unlisted. No, I just told you mine. Mine is not unlisted. But I feel great. I don't think I've had any diminution in my mental capacity uh, or my, uh, my energy. You and I talked about <laughs> my energy level. And in the past, I mean, I can outrun in, in terms of double, you know, double doing everything and making, you know, do, doing everything that needs to be done quickly and efficiently. Um, young people can't keep up with me. I just have that energy. And, you know, just you saw the State of the Union address. Yeah, you saw yeah. President Biden speaking in Ukraine. 
He yep. has the energy. He has the intellect. He has the ability. Yeah. And I think too, for, for Democrats, especially to focus, I'm not saying age isn't important, but there are so many more things to focus on, like what President Biden has done, focusing on his accomplishments, celebrating them and and using that as I mean, his age is, I think, gives him um, perspective and a tool. I mean, he, he's been in the Senate for years. He knows how it operates. I mean, he has he goes into office with, I think, a set of experiences that younger people first might not have. And he's also at the same time, he's elevated young people in his administration. This is an administration that's younger, that's more diverse um, than ever before. And I think he's really showing that, you know, he's the leader, but those around him are doing the really important work. And they're what makes this administration, I think, so, um, so different from previous ones is, is the people who are a part of it. And there's, I think I've told you, Jill, before, but one of the um, mottos uh, that the White House Personnel Office uses is people are policy. And they really focused on putting people, um, younger people, more diverse people, more women um, in positions of power. And that's what really makes this administration, I think, unique and remarkable. Um, and I think President Biden is an extraordinary thing. But like you said, ages are something. I, I, I want to just, you know, yeah. when you mentioned youth, young voters by an overwhelming number, 85 percent want yeah. Biden to be the candidate. More than any other age group. of young voters. So yeah, folks. Yeah. There's no problem with President Biden being the candidate in 2024. Yeah, no, it's it's um, we'll see what happens. But I, we're, I think we're starting to see young people really resonate with what this administration has done uh, for their lives. Um, I do want to maybe the last thing we can talk about are some concerning things out of um, Georgia. Do you want to explain that for our audience and how concerning what their new bill regarding district attorneys uh, means? Yes, um, it's not as horrible as I, when I first read it, if you delve into the details, basically what this is, is a proposal to have a law that would allow a commission appointed by the Republican governor and the lieutenant governor, who, by the way, is under investigation and is a target of Fannie Willis's um, uh, DA of Fulton County, of her investigation of the January 6th, uh, in its broadest sense of the word, because it includes the fake elector scheme, and he was one of the fake electors. So this would give this commission the ability to remove a DA who they didn't like. But if you read the details, number one, no one could be removed until after 2024 okay. July, which means this is not going to impact the DA Willis's investigation, because that will be over and indicted or not indicted by them. So it takes away what was the immediate appearance of it being targeted at yep. eliminating yep. that. So that made me feel a little bit less horrible. Democrats have in fact suggested this in the past for fear that DAs would not prosecute cases like Ahmad Arbery which they didn't do. It took the feds to come in there and really yeah. push it. So it could be used to prevent no action by a DA in cases where the district attorney should be acting on the abolition of voting rights or uh, a racially motivated killing. Um, and so I think that if it's properly framed, now the setup that they have is, inherently suspicious because it's yeah, all yeah. Republicans who would be in the deciding factor. That can't be. It has to be something where 
It's not Republicans saying, yeah, don't prosecute that. Um, it was also clearly targeted at, I think from some of what I've read, DAs who have said they would not prosecute for anyone seeking an abortion under the yeah, new yeah. anti-abortion laws. And the, the reason that motivated that was saying, look, this is the law. You have to prosecute any violation of our existing laws. You don't make the laws, you enforce the laws. Mm -hmm. So it's a complicated, it's more complicated than I thought. And the exact details of the language of the statute are what you have to look at. And one bill has passed in the House, one in the Senate. They're now compromising. And until you see the exact language, let's not get hysterical. It clearly has yeah, yeah, the potential yeah. for misuse. And that troubles me a great deal. Um, DAs are elected and right. you can't take away the right of people to choose their elected DA because you at a higher level of government or a different level of government don't like what they are doing or not doing. They should be able to, in their election campaign, say what they will and won't do. And mm -hmm. people select mm -hmm. that. And you can't override it if you're in a different point of view. That's interesting conduct. And we know that Fannie Willis has called this an um, extreme over, I guess, reaction to what's happening. And do you think that they did this because of Fannie Willis's investigation? Well, if they were, they wouldn't have put a 2024 timeline on it. She's called it yeah. racist because she said, it's interesting, we've had these issues forever and ever. It's only now that there are a larger number of people of color in the district attorney's chair right, right. that they're passing this. I, you know, she's a pretty persuasive person and she's making a very good point. Um, yeah. But as I said, if you look at it, there are some reasons why Democrats wanted this in the past. And I think if it's carefully crafted and if it isn't put in the hands of a small group of Republicans to make clearly partisan decisions that it could be. It seems unnecessary because, of course, there is recall from the voters. And, um, you know, voters have the right to pick a person who represents yeah. what they want done. Mm -hmm. Well, that'll be interesting to see what happens um, in that case. Um, and maybe maybe the last thing we can talk about for today is um, there was some news out of Walgreens. Um, they chose to basically ban abortion pills in 20 states where abortion is legal. And yesterday, um, Governor uh, Gavin Newsom in the state that I'm in, California, said that he will end business ties with Walgreens because of what they did, which I think is a really kind of significant and important thing for him to do. And I wish um, governors like J.B. Pritzker, other Democratic governors um, follow suit, but just kind of Walgreens. I mean, it, it's, I mean, are you boycotting Walgreens? What they did was really, I think, um, grotesque. And there's been a really strong reaction, I think, as there should be. But I just fear, I hope CBS and, and other um, companies don't do the same. So it's a very complicated issue. Yeah. I my first reaction was I'm transferring all of my prescriptions from Walgreens and I'm going to yep, stop yep. shopping at Walgreens. And in Chicago, Walgreens is, um, I, I know CVS is the number one largest pharmacy, but in Chicago, I think Walgreens probably Walgreens is. is yeah, yeah. And so in terms of convenience, Walgreens is it for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I read what they were doing 
and caving in on something that is a perfectly safe drug, yeah. it seemed to me that it was time to boycott them. Then I heard, well, CVS is just going to follow suit. So I don't want to transfer my prescriptions <laughs> until I know for right. sure that CVS, CVS isn't. isn't doing I've it. also right. heard that, and I did not know this, that Amazon has a pharmacy. So Amazon's really big. I hope oh, wow. they wouldn't give in. On the other hand, you know, look, Disney caved into DeSantis. Yeah, yeah. And they certainly have the financial wherewithal to have stood up to oh. him. So I'm... I want to see how this plays out before I yeah. start playing around with my medicines that I need. Uh, but yes, I certainly am going to stop shopping at Walgreens until yeah. I hear further. And I will transfer my prescriptions once I'm sure that I'm transferring it to somewhere that is going to stand. That is not going to do this. Right. And I, I also want to make one other point because I have a, a group of friends. We call ourselves the Quints because there are five of us. Yeah. And several of them have extraordinary knowledge in the abortion area and in pharmacy area um, and insurance and many of them. I mean, they're a brilliant group of women. Um, and I thought that, you know, because half of all abortions in the country are medicated abortions using a combination of mifeprestone and mesoprostol, that by taking mifeprestone, which is the drug at issue, away, um, that it would really impact dramatically half of all abortions, even in states where it's legal. And no, no. what I learned is that although it is more dangerous because it causes more bleeding, you can increase the dosage of misoprostol and still use medicated abortion. And for some reason, right now, at least that drug hasn't been challenged. And I also want our listeners to know that the attorneys general of Oregon and Washington, and now joined by the Illinois attorney general, and I think maybe 10 others, are challenging any restriction on mifeprestone, saying that it has a 20-year history of safety and that any restrictions on it, which there are mm -hmm. some serious restrictions on how you get it, that don't apply to more dangerous drugs like some routine painkillers. Uh, like, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's Advil or Aleve, or, but just normal drugs. Um, so it shouldn't be restricted. And so that case could undo the damage that the case in Texas might do. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, I will say just one, going back to Walgreens and, and CVS, for any company that that's thinking of following in Walgreens suit. I mean, I think they've definitely angered a, a huge portion of the electorate, but especially when you think about younger people where so much of where they work, so much of where they choose to shop and so much of where they just go and, and, and into, you know, do, do their shopping or, or buy their stuff has to do with their personal values. And this is a generation that um, really cares about what companies do and whether or not it aligns with the values that we believe. And so I know I've talked to a bunch of young people and they have been paying attention to this and a lot of them have stopped. There's a Walgreens right across the street uh, here in UCLA. And most of the people I talk to are now boycotting Walgreens and not buying them anymore. And so I think hopefully yes. Walgreens learns this and hopefully CVS and other companies will pay attention and not cave in because um, then I don't know where I would shop, uh, fr frankly. So um, we'll see what happens there, but it's just and, kind of, cons yeah. yeah. Go ahead, in the spirit of intergenerational, I just want you to yeah. know that back in the day when, um, Apartheid was a big cause. 
apartheid in South Africa, yep. uh, my generation boycotted companies that did business. And during oh, the Vietnam yeah, War, yeah. companies were boycotted who provided Agent right. Orange and other horrible things for yeah. the war. So, I mean, using our economic power yep. has long been a, yes. a, a way to make companies go, well, maybe that wasn't so smart of me. Because these companies yeah. care about money. And, right. and exactly. And I certainly won't be visiting Florida anytime. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. You know, only to I, see Maxwell Frost. I would, yes, or or there are some very good, strong groups. I'm yes, giving yes. a speech there in February of next year, be and, safe, be safe. and I will still, you know, do that. But I wouldn't just vacation there anymore because yeah, I don't want to yeah. support Governor DeSantis and his right, horrible right. conduct. Yeah, you know, I I I, I lived I, there I for a year. I loved Florida. You did? I, I, loved, oh. yeah, I lived there. Which for part a of Florida year. did you live? I lived in hmm? which which part did you live in? I lived in in Miami. Oh, okay. I lived. Um, now, um, my husband had his business on Bay Harbor Island, which is in between Bell Harbor and North Miami. Oh, and, okay, okay. And yeah, it was a we had a great year, um, and I wow. I I loved it. My husband went to FSU, so. Oh, he's, he's yeah, a long time Florida person, but yeah, um, you know, I would never go, but it does give me comfort that there are good Democrats there. I mean, Katie yeah. Fang, I know lives in Miami, Rachel Vindman and Alex Vindman just moved to Florida. Um, same with other states like, you know, Joyce Vance, she's from Alabama and and she's um, really, I think, representing the state well and, and trying to do good and, and, and where these Republicans are just doing just really obscene and, and um, irresponsible things. So um, we, we thank our Democrats in those red states because they need you uh, to be there and, and pushing back against them. Um, that is all the time that we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Maxwell Frost. Um, Jill and I look forward to having him back on again in the near future to talk more about his time in Congress. Um, and we hope you'll join us next week for another episode of iGen Politics. We'll be back on Tuesday. You can also listen to this episode uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, or I guess if you're listening to this today, um, be sure to listen to us wherever you follow your podcast, whether it be Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can follow us wherever and leave us a five-star review and rating. Um, thank you so much for watching and we will see you next week.